2: Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. As you just heard, President Joe Biden is receiving pressure from several members of Congress to somehow intervene as the CDC's eviction moratorium is set to expire. But the president today in a statement is urging Congress to act. Biden cited the Supreme Court's recent ruling that, quote, clear and specific congressional authorization, probably through new legislation, would be necessary for the CDC to extend the moratorium passed this July 31st. Now, in light of the Supreme Court's ruling, the president is calling on Congress to extend the eviction moratorium, as they call it, to protect such vulnerable renters and their families without delay. Millions are expected to be impacted, impacted if another moratorium isn't enacted. Now, we'll revisit a conversation regarding how thousands of Georgians are at risk.
1: It is incredibly hard to find new housing if you have both an eviction and rent debt that you're trying to pay back. It's really hard to get a new landlord to accept you. And so
2: where are people going to go? And later on Closer Look, the Gwinnett County Police Department is partnering with a community behavioral health center to provide on-call assistance for those in need. Now, those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, this through executive order yesterday, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms issued a mandatory indoor mask mandate for, quote, persons in public place, including private businesses and establishments. Now, this also gives the city, mainly the mayor, the authority to, quote, imposes emergency curfew regulations, to close businesses establishments within the affected area, and to close any and all city-owned buildings and other facilities to the use of the general public. Now taking to his official Facebook page and Twitter, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp declared quote, "The state will not lock down or impose statewide mask mandates." Kemp went on to say, quote, the data is clear. Thanks to efforts initiated under the Trump administration, we have a medical miracle in multiple vaccines that protect from the virus and save lives. Nearly all new COVID hospitalizations in Georgia are among the unvaccinated, close quote. In other news, the Department of Agriculture announced a new effort today to help farmers of color. $67 million will be used for the USDA's new Heirs Property Relending Program. And not just for farmers of color, but farmers they view as being disadvantaged. The program was created following the 2018 Farm Bill that was passed by Congress. Now, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack talked about the purpose of the program during a virtual press conference today.
0: And it's certainly an important day for every individual uh, in America today that is owning a fractionated interest of land. Uh, As we know uh, from history, uh, African-Americans lost a significant amount of land uh, over the course of many, many years uh, as a result of not being able to transfer land by virtue of a deed or uh, having a will uh, when a landowner passed away. And as a result, over time, uh, interest in land basically got carved up into small fractions uh, making it extremely difficult uh, for the owners of those fractions to be able to access uh, many of the programs at USDA, and for that matter, uh, many of the programs across the federal government, across state government, and even uh, commercial lending opportunities of ownership. But it is really the gateway to a myriad uh, of programs and opportunities.
2: Vilsack went on to say many farmers have lost a million or almost up to a million in acres of land due to those fraction interests. Georgia Democratic U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock supports the program.
3: Uh, Today is a day of celebration uh, for farmers all across our country uh, and certainly for farmers in Georgia. And I want to commend uh, the Secretary for taking action to stand up the heirs property relending program. For too many farmers in Georgia, a lack of proper legal documentation threatens their ability to keep the farm and the family and then to securely pass that land on to their children.
2: And Secretary Vilsack added the Community Development Financial Institutions, also known as CDFIs, will actually help manage the program working with landowners to help them consolidate land and buy out the fractionated interests. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As you heard earlier, President Joe Biden is today in a statement urging Congress to act as it relates to the CDC's moratorium on evictions, which is set to expire. Now, Biden cited the Supreme Court's recent ruling that Quote, was clear and specific that it was congressional authorization that would be necessary in order to extend that moratorium past July 31st. And as we know, million, millions are expected to be impacted if another moratorium isn't enacted. Courts in cities like Atlanta, counties such as Fulton, DeKalb, Clayton already have a backlog in the eviction procedures. And without some type of intervention, uh, experts say this will just grow. Now, earlier in the week, the National Low Income Housing Coalition held a webinar. Research analyst Dan Threet included recent data regarding the national snapshot of those at risk for eviction. It was called the Road Ahead for Low-Income Renters. And the data was actually compiled using information from the U.S. Census Bureau.
4: We estimate that as of early July, about 15.5 percent of renter households, or about 6.5 million households all told, were not caught up on rent. Most are lower income earning less than $35,000 a year. About two-thirds are in states that, to our knowledge, have no additional eviction protections beyond the end of the CDC eviction moratorium. Of those who have fallen behind on rent, about half expect to be evicted within the next two months.
2: As for here in Georgia, I recently spoke with Alora Raymond. Now, she's an assistant professor of city and regional planning at Georgia Tech. She has extensive research and working in housing-related areas such as housing justice, race, and segregation. And we received a lot of feedback regarding the segment. And knowing that everyone has access to the Internet, we're going to rebroadcast the segment right now. Professor, thanks for taking the time. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. I think when we first spoke to you, you were a research assistant uh, working on that. I think it was a Federal Reserve report. On, That's f- right. Yeah. Yes,
1: we were looking at evictions uh, among properties owned by corporate landlords uh, and, several years ago.
2: And you told me back then, along with so many other people, and it's a, it's also a, it's something I remember from Ryan Gravel that said the housing in general was heading to a, a tsunami. That was back then. When you mm-hmm. look back at where we are in 2021, because obviously no one knew a pandemic was going to occur, this this moratorium with the eviction process, um, through your lens, what is this nation facing when this moratorium expires in just a few days?
1: Well, it's really troubling. Um, around uh, Estimates suggest that around 22% of all Georgia renters are behind on rent. Uh, many of these tenants have through no fault of their own, lost their job, lost income, are, are several months behind on rent and have no way to uh, pay that money. And unfortunately, uh, Georgia has spent less than 2% of the emergency rental assistance money that is available to help these tenants uh, with, with the rent that they owe. And it, it doesn't look good. We don't have enough time uh, and we really need that moratorium to be extended. And we also need uh, our... Um, rental assistance uh, programs to be much more effective than they are right now. The money is there. It's just not going out the door.
2: You mentioned less than 2%. How are you all coming by that, that number? Uh, the Treasury has put out
1: figures about the uh, amount of emergency rental assistance that was given to states and then dispersed to counties and cities. Uh, And they also provide a figure of of how much money has been spent. And so Georgia got $553.3 million Mm -hmm. in round one, but we've spent less than 2% of it. And at the local level, those numbers are very low as well.
2: We had state officials on this program when Mm -hmm. that money, when it was announced that Georgia would get that amount of money. Have you all been able to identify why only 2% of it has been spent, knowing that Georgia was one of the states, and particularly here in the in the Atlanta area, knowing the backlog and knowing how knowing how many people needed this assistance, what have you all been able to uncover? Well, when we look at other states, are doing much better.
1: Virginia has paid out 43% of their ERA funds. Texas um, has also spent around 33, 34% of their ERA funds, and we talk with particular. Um, um, people in particular local jurisdictions like deKalb county or city of atlanta what we find is that although this program was structured to be very flexible um, uh, tenants don't need to prove that they lost their job they just need to uh, certify and, and basically say that yes i lost my job due to covid um, the, you know the paperwork requirements are on purpose very low to allow the money to go out quickly um, and and also another thing that's really great about this program at the federal level is that if for some reason a landlord is unwilling to accept this money because they don't want the strings attached because they just want to evict this tenant anyways, mm-hmm. and we do see that, what um, what Treasury says you should do and what in their second round of funding, they're saying you're required to do is you're supposed to offer that money to the tenant. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, places like DeKalb County, City of Atlanta are not doing that. Um, So the money is just not going out the door because they are imposing additional paperwork requirements. And because when landlords, for whatever reason, do not want to accept this deal, they don't then give the money to the tenant, even though that's what Treasury encourages and going forward will require. Um, these jurisdictions to do with the money
2: and professor before we move on with our conversation because wabe housing reporter stephanie stokes who's been following all of this she just had a report on how most rental assistance programs in metro atlanta won't pay tenants directly ignoring federal guidance i want to play stephanie's entire feature it's about four minutes long take a listen
3: miranda gordon has barely left her house in the last year
2: i'm I'm a stay-at-home mom i'm here 24 7
3: So are her four children. They've all been together in this suburban home in South DeKalb County for the entire pandemic. Gordon says that turned out to be a blessing.
2: It brought us closer. We're here all the time
3: with each other. When I do something, they're with me. Every time you see me, you see them. They were in the middle of their own crisis at the start of 2020. Gordon had to move her children out of an abusive situation. They just settled in this house when the other worldwide crisis began.
2: I think. It happened for a reason in my family. Scary, of course, but I feel like we had to go through that to get where we're at today.
3: She says they're ready for a new chapter now, after they overcome one more obstacle. Gordon's landlord filed an eviction earlier this year. With the pandemic, her job in human resources became remote, but part-time. She paid some of her rent with the help of churches, and she says her landlord was understanding.
2: I don't know what happened, but I get it. You know, he had to do his job.
3: She doesn't get what came next, though. After the eviction notice, she qualified for federal rental assistance through DeKalb County. The program and Gordon together offered to pay her landlord $10,000 in back rent. And he said no.
2: And I was just confused that he was
3: getting the past due plus two additional months of rent. And he declined it. So I don't know. There are more cases like hers. Lindsay Siegel is Director of Housing Advocacy at Atlanta Legal Aid, which is helping DeKalb County with rental assistance. She says 15 percent of landlords have rejected their offers so far. The difficulty is you can't force the landlord to take the money. And the other difficulty is DeKalb County is one of several local governments that won't consider the next option. To give money to the tenant, even though the federal government has asked them to. Diane Yantel is president of the National Low Income Housing Coalition. It's very clear in the guidance from the White House that they expect program administrators to
5: use direct-to-tenant assistance when landlords refuse to participate.
3: She says when a landlord refuses to participate, it already slows down the process. And if a program won't pay the tenant, the outcome just becomes worse. It then has the result
5: of leaving that tenant without any assistance at all.
3: Yantel has heard some programs worry tenants may misuse funds. But she notes that worry doesn't come up in relief efforts for people with higher incomes. There's less reluctance to give cash directly to homeowners, knowing that they will pay their bills, than there is to do the same with low-income renters. If programs want some assurance, she says they can have tenants sign a form, promising to spend the money right. DeKalb County wouldn't comment for this story, and neither would Gordon's landlord. According to Legal Aid, the disagreement came down to when she would move out. She agreed to, within 60 days. The landlord insisted on 30. The National Apartment Association says other landlords, which they call housing providers, might reject federal money because local programs add requirements, like to not evict tenants. To Jody Applewhite with the association, that approach is misguided.
5: The grantees should focus on making sure that the money reaches to the housing providers who have gone months without any um, payments.
3: Decap's local program also has a condition on its federal funds. It only pays 60 percent of past due rent. Gordon made up the rest with her own money. Now, the county can only offer her a consolation prize, according to Siegel, with legal aid. Once she is able to find a new place to rent, she can submit that new lease to the court and have two months covered. That amount will be a lot less than the rent she owes at her current home. And it also means Gordon has to find new housing, which is difficult with the eviction case against her. She's still trying.
2: I feel it's all gonna come into play. Sooner or later, I just gotta be patient.
3: She's working full-time now. Eventually, she would like to buy a house for her and her children. With the debt she owes to her landlord, she realizes that new chapter may be farther off. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News.
2: W.A.B. Stephanie Stokes there. And I wanted to play that entire feature because I think Professor, I'm back now with Professor Laura Raymond, Assistant Professor of City and Regional Planning at Georgia Tech. So much in Stephanie's piece that really highlights a lot of issues, a lot of optics here in this eviction crisis. What stood out to you that, first of all, in terms of is at the core of what we're all going to be facing here?
1: I, I think that um, that set of interviews absolutely gets to the to the core of what we're facing. And one issue that was raised that I think is really important is that, uh, again, you know, 22% of Georgia tenants are behind on rent, according to estimates. Uh, many of them, through no fault of their own, because the economy contracted during this crisis, it is really through no fault of their own that they were unable to make rent. Um, And it is incredibly hard to find new housing if you have both an eviction and rent debt Mm -hmm. uh, that you're trying to pay back. It's really hard to get a new landlord to accept you. And so where are people going to go? Uh, We have thousands of people uh, within the city of Atlanta since the beginning of the pandemic. Over 90,000 evictions have been filed, according to our our, uh, eviction tracker that we keep. Um, Where are people going to go uh, if they have both an eviction and this rent debt? And so the issue of sealing magistrate records, I think is pretty important. That's one uh, that that some groups are trying to put forth before the legislature and talk about with different county courts, um, because this is a, a special situation. In addition mm-hmm. to the normal eviction crisis we have, um, we also have a lot of people who uh, are entering into the rental market going forward with a bad history uh, because of this pandemic.
2: And Professor, we know Every state is different. Georgia has long for a long time was considered a very landlord friendly state. That's just what people would call it. Uh, There have been some few uh, through the state legislature. There have been some changes through your lens with the rollout of the with the program from the federal government. Should there have been maybe a different type of or a, a blanket sort of process that all states had to follow in terms of making sure landlords would get their money? and then also allowing the tenant to be able to stay for a while, even if the landlord wanted them out. Would that have, you think, alleviated some of this backlog that we already have and the ensuing problems that apparently this nation is going to incur as well?
1: I I think it's hard to, um, you, you know, there's some landlords, and we saw this during the foreclosure crisis, they just don't have any interest in accepting this money. They can rent you know, especially in a gentrifying city like Atlanta, where rents are rising, they can rent to a new tenant tomorrow with a perfect credit history for higher rent, and that's a better deal for them. Um, and so it's it, it, even though it's really bad for us as a society, it's really bad for our economy as a whole to allow tens of thousands of people to not receive any aid during this crisis. For the individual landlord, that's their best bet. And without any kind of tenant strong tenant protections, there's nothing to bring some landlords to the bargaining table. Um, So I think having stronger tenant law would be, would help us through this crisis. And in general, I think that would be an important step for Georgia.
2: But in Stephanie's piece, as we heard the tenant, and I know there could be a lot, there's a back back backstory here, but from what we know of, the tenant offered the landlord $10,000, the landlord declined, Mm -hmm. which fine. But also, The tenant mentioned one day I want to buy a house and you and I both know then your credit comes into play here because even if you are evicted, you leave without going to court. Doesn't that go on your credit report?
1: Yeah, I think that um, what you're pointing to here is that. Because we're not providing recovery money for people, we're going to be living with the consequences of this housing crisis for years. And this is what happened in Georgia after the subprime and -hmm. foreclosure crisis, that because we didn't have effective emergency responses, uh, we went through it. For mm-hmm. years longer than people in other states. And it damaged our economy for years after, you know, cities, other cities around the country had totally forgotten about the foreclosure crisis, we were still in the midst of it. So that that there is that similarity.
2: Counties, Fulton, DeKalb, and Clayton, were some of the hardest hit. And I remember covering that especially in DeKalb County the foreclosures and, and there were some subdivisions here in Fulton County where the entire subdivision was foreclosed and there was nobody living in and the banks did not take care of those properties you suspect we're going to see some of these same outcomes not just with folks but just with some properties now again things have changed because folks around here are snapping up properties left and right but you feel that this is going to be even much worse than what we saw after the 2008 the great recession
1: well one thing that i've noticed is that a lot of our unsubsidized affordable housing um, our lower rent but you know still market rate places are struggling because they have a lot of tenants who have not been able to pay and they're having trouble staying afloat Mm -hmm. and in my research when properties like this are purchased at low rates by large corporate landlords. Often that accelerates a trend of displacement and gentrification. Uh, The research that I've done on private equity owned uh, single family rentals and multifamily apartment complexes uh, ties those landlords to um, practices that aren't really great Mm -hmm. as a as a set of public policies for for those of us here in atlanta so rising rents increased number of evictions and and neighborhood change and displacement so i i do worry that we'll see a lot of these um unsubsidized of affordable apartments within the city of atlanta change hands because of this pandemic and i wonder what the new landlords will do
2: do you think that it is possible, and I don't know how all this could be worked out, as it goes back to then how this will impact people in the future, could there be some type of, of leniency given then to folks who might have gone through the eviction process during this pandemic? And if they have some type of documentation that says, hey, I at least did make an offer to my landlord, of course, this is totally up to that next landlord. Or Because, look, let's be clear, trying to qualify to maybe buy a home with an eviction on your, on your credit report is not going to be helpful at all.
1: I I absolutely support sealing magistrate records for tenants who have had um, evictions filed against them for non-payment of rent. And I know that that's one of the policy options that's on the
2: table. Um,
1: I Is that I per county?
2: Is that per county?
1: That that could be done at the state level, but it also, you know, the courts are run on the county level. So yeah, mm-hmm. the, the county courts um, would have to consider that if there was an action at the state
2: level. Are you optimistic that the state legislature could enact something soon to help?
1: I think there's a really strong case that this is important for our economy, for the Georgia economy. And I think that our legislature is business savvy and they understand that we do not need another housing crisis. Uh, So I'm always optimistic.
2: Well, meanwhile, Professor, in all the your research and studies that you've been a part of, and I know asking about solutions, you know, you know we don't have probably, we you know, we would take a lot more time, but immediate solutions, what are you hoping here?
1: I think our best bet is to increase the pace of uh, tenant rental assistance that we is something that folks in city of Atlanta, DeKalb County, uh, sit, you know, around Atlanta can do right away. Um, they can change the way they're administering this program, uh, follow the recommendations of treasury and get money out the door sooner. And that's going to help a lot of people.
2: But again, it also means the landlord. At the core of all this too is the landlord, right? That's, I mean, the, I mean, the that's woman a, in Stephanie's story, she offered the landlord right. $10,000.
1: Well, then what what DeKalb County can do is just give that $6,000 to the tenant, Mm -hmm. and the tenant can pay off her rent debt. She has $4,000, and she can move somewhere else, and at least she will have a clean credit history. So right now what DeKalb is doing is saying, tenant, you get nothing, and that tenant is going to have trouble renting elsewhere. So what they need to do is just give the money to the tenant. That is the solution, the short-term solution. Thinking more long term about how to work with our landlords and and housing providers, um, in a way that benefits all of Atlanta. That's a longer term question, I think.
2: And I have an email from a listener who says, you know, what are you all not thinking about the landlords? What about the landlords? Ask your guest that. I mean, that's all they wrote. So, and and to be fair, we have reached out to so many associations with. Uh, apartment managing companies and landlords and and no one has agreed to come on the program so we are not saying that the landlords aren't they have not been also a burden as well but also trying to figure out what's the best solution for for everyone involved what are other states doing professor that you think georgia could could borrow from could use a template
1: There's been a lot of excitement about the uh, eviction diversion program that's going on in uh, Philadelphia right now. And I think that that is a model that we could look into. Um, I think looking at what Virginia and Texas are doing in terms of dispersing their uh, emergency rental assistance. And this again would help landlords. This is money going to landlords Mm -hmm. primarily, um, but, but copying the templates that they've used there. Um, And I think sealing magistrate records for tenants who've had evictions filed against them for non-payment of rent, I think that that would be a big step because we don't want tens of thousands of people who were affected by this crisis through no fault of their own uh, trying to make a life with damaged uh, rental histories. That's going to be, you know, a drag on on their potential.
2: Meanwhile, I know there's some advocacy groups that have been working since last year to help folks. What are people's resources here? What work worth can they turn?
1: It's um, it's frustrating. I um, recommend the United Way, you know, two one number. I think that's a great clearinghouse for people to call and get a sense for what resources are available um, locally to them. That's that's my first recommendation when when people ask me that question.
2: And given what just happened last week uh, with the ruling from the Sixth U.S. Court of Appeals. Even if the CDC did at the last moment say we were going to extend this moratorium, you will see a lot of challenges. And that was in the one in, in the sixth U.S. Court of Appeals was brought by a landlord. So even if that did happen, you're going to have a lot of challenges. I agree. I
1: And I'm not a lawyer. And I understand you're talking with a lawyer later on, so I don't want to overstep. But um <laughs>
2: The new dean at Georgia State
1: (laughs) will ask her. (laughs) Maybe you want to ask her that question. But, you know, the American Journal of Epidemiology found that the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19 was five times higher in the months after an eviction moratorium expired. Mm -hmm. And the number of COVID-19 cases doubled. And we have a very low vaccination rate here in Georgia. And we have rising cases due to this Delta variant. So there's a really strong public health reason for this evictions moratorium. It's not frivolous. There's a really good Mm -hmm. life and death reason for this to be in place right now.
2: And that is why. CDC initially declared the pandemic was, a, it, was a, it was a threat you know to housing to people's livelihoods. so
1: mm-hmm. absolutely
2: Laura allora Raymond is an assistant professor of city and regional planning at Georgia Tech with extensive research and work in housing related areas such as housing justice segregation displacement and work on eviction and migration following disasters Professor thank you so much for taking the time as always I really appreciate it we'll have to have you all back um, see where we go from here
1: all right. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the program.
2: And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlantis Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Recently on the program, we told you about the city of Atlanta expanding its policing alternatives and diversion initiative. It's called PAD. It's a program created to provide an immediate alternative to responding to non-emergency calls regarding individuals who are probably more in need of quality of life resources. For example, mental health challenges, substance abuse, or even those who might be experiencing homelessness. So instead of calling 911, the number for Atlanta residents is 311. There's something similar, similar launching in Gwinnett County. It's called the Police Mental Health Collaboration Program. It's a co-responder program. It's pairing Gwinnett, uh, Gwinnett, excuse me, Gwinnett's police officer and a mental health professional from Viewpoint Health to respond to crisis behavioral health situations. So joining me now to talk more about the program is Corporal Tracy Reed with the Gwinnett Police Behavioral Health Unit and Pej Madavi, a licensed clinical social worker with Viewpoint Health. Corporal Reed and Pej Madavi, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
5: Thank you for having us, Rose. We appreciate you uh, bringing us on the show today.
2: Let's begin here, and I'll start with you, uh, Corporate, because it's been do- it's been documented. We know that the barriers COVID-19 has created for those already uh, living with and suffering with mental health conditions, and then also for those who may not have even been receiving any treatment. And so now comes programs like this. How important is it now to have programs like this more? And has COVID-19 as a pandemic really amplified that need? Corporal?
5: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been with Gwinnett County Police Department since 2007, and it it has only increased the need for units like this to help with the, the population of consumers that, that need mental health resources. And over the last year and a half, um, I think we have really started to see people being more willing to address their mental health because we've, we've been forced to look at it. Um, and so with the push of trying to get rid of some of that stigma mm-hmm. that goes along with mental illness is also a, an increased desire to get treatment and to get help. And one of the ways that, that we're able to do that is by utilizing this program with our department to give the population here in Gwinnett County the security and the comfort to know that if they call 911, we, we have officers that are trained and we have clinicians that we work with to get them to the right resource.
2: Mm. Mr. Radavi, what about you? Why now do you think it's really important to have programs like this partnerships too? Uh,
4: I think we've, we've needed this for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think right now, everything has fell into where it needs to fall into. So it, it's starting to happen. But uh, I mean, we always talk about how we work with the same people, uh, you know, Mental health professionals and law enforcement, we work with the same people. We just need to kind of join forces um, and, and address crisis when it, when it happens. So now it's happening and it's great.
2: Corporal Reed, I want to come back to you. Think back to your training uh, as an officer. Did you all have much in terms of deal t- dealing with someone that you might encounter that clearly was in a, a what we would call a, a, having a mental episode? Was there much training resources for you all?
5: Um, so the the training is out there and it's available um, starting in March of this year, we have uh, begun putting every single recruit officer that comes through our academy goes through CIT, which is the crisis intervention team training. So we are um, developing a training plan to roll that out uh, department wide to try to get more officers through that class. Um, as far as the the training prior to officers going through CIT, uh, one of the interesting things is that i've I've taught that block mm-hmm. since. About 2015, and the the fact that we are starting to get more buy in from from state resources, from local government officials that say we want you guys to get more training on how to deal with these calls, and that we're able to put more people through CIT and get that, it's it's always going to help. Um, the state has has mandated that mental health training as a part of the academy since I started in 2007. Mm-hmm. But to be able to add CIT on top of that is only going to benefit our officers.
2: And you can obviously speak from experience. What so far, since you've been, you said you've, you've taught it, what has been the feedback from officers so far with what you have been in terms of an instructor?
5: So um, so for me, the, the block that I teach is part of our training academy. So it's recruit officers. And for them, um, they just want to know what resources do we have? Mm-hmm. Because that's that's a, the big part of what, what people don't know is what can law enforcement do when we get there? And the fact that we're learning a lot more about accountability courts, where if folks qualify, they can get routed to mental health court, substance abuse court, veterans court, um, rather than going through Uh, the the criminal probation process, they can get the treatment programs that are going to help them. Um, We have a a unit at our jail called the GRIP unit, which is the Gwinnett Reentry Intervention Program that helps people as they're leaving to jail, leaving the jail to get back into society and continue with the treatment that, that they've been receiving. So, and then partnering with Viewpoint, we're able to connect with more of those community resources to continue to help folks that that need the help and they might not know where
2: to turn. Speaking of viewpoint, I want to go back to uh, Pej Madavi. How did this partnership come along?
4: So uh, I think, you know, like we kind of talked about it, it's always been one of those things that we need to happen, we need to do. Uh, I personally have an interest in this. When I lived in Los Angeles, I did a lot of work with law enforcement and, and uh, Los Angeles County's version of, of DFACS. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming here, that's always been something that I've wanted to do. And I think with everything going on in our country, and and the need for mental health coming out, uh, all the chips kind of lined up, uh, and then our l- leaders kind of reached out to each other, and and you know magic happened. <laughs> so
2: you call it magic. Well, let's take our listeners through this because we, we're calling this a co-responder program. It pairs a Gwinnett police officer and a mental health professional, or one from Viewpoint Health how does this work? Someone calls, they say, you know, I think this is a person experiencing some type of, of mental episode here. Uh, what happens next?
5: So the way that we are structuring our program is that we're a team. So I'm assigned to what our, our department is calling the behavioral health unit. Mm-hmm. And so Pej and I work together as a team. So we sit. we have an office that we share here at police headquarters, and we will periodically look at the calls that are going on um, and see if there's something that we can help with. And then um, supervisors and officers from the road can call our unit and say, Hey, we're, we're kind of stuck here and we need more resources for this person. Mm-hmm. They don't need to go to jail. They attend 13, which, you know, that's the involuntary committal. It, it may or may not be effective for this person, but we would just really mm-hmm. like them to, to get the resources because they're, they're in a crisis. And at that point they can call us and we can respond directly to the scene and help that individual get connected with mental health or behavioral health resources. So and it just helps keep them from getting stuck in that cycle.
2: So the officers are also, they they can reach out to you all and say, this is a situation where we think someone like Pedge or someone to come out. When you're pairing the officer and, and, a, and a viewpoint health professional, how, how does that training work for them together? What do they have to know?
5: So a, a big part is just getting to know each other and how we work on calls. So Pej and I have, have, you know, we talk after calls to say, hey, this is what we could have done better. This is the direction that maybe we could go in next time for this person. So uh, we really just get to know each other. And he kind of tells me from the mental health standpoint what he is and isn't able to do. And I do the same thing for him from the law enforcement standpoint. So that way, you know, we're, we're really handling two sides of the same problem that we're able to, to get the consumers to the right resources, whether it's from a law enforcement standpoint or a mental health professional standpoint, we're able to, to work together to get them where they need to go.
2: So, Pedge, when you all have these conversations about, you know what, we could have maybe used this or maybe something different could have worked, uh, what are those conversations like? Can you give us a, an example or scenario here
4: <laughs> that you can um, provide? Yeah. <laughs> um no i i think that relationship is so key because you don't want to come across as being bossy or like you did this wrong or you should have done that or whatever and i think you know i think uh corporate and i have we, we've become besties <laughs> so i can say hey look so here's the thing if you take this approach somebody is more liable to shut down um it, you know if you the way that you approach mental illness with the stigma with you know so i can offer my uh you know, expertise and my experiences. And on the other end, uh, Corporal Reed can be like, listen, you know, we got to be mindful of safety, mm-hmm. you know. So, in a safety, you know, stance, let's do this, do that. This is how you kind of uh, approach the situation. And then when we can put our heads together, and in a lot of situations, we have to use the accountability courts, we have to use the law, we have to use. She, she brings her you know, law enforcement, I bring my mental health experience together and to, you know, I think that's the beauty of it is, is we use whatever these resources are to help that person that's in need. Cause not everybody thinks there's a problem. Not everybody mm-hmm. acknowledges that there may be something going on. So we have to get creative and we want to respect folks as well. So.
2: The voice you hear is Pej Madavi. He's a licensed clinical social worker with Viewpoint Health. I'm also talking to Corporal Reed and, Thank you so much. Thank you both for, excuse me, Corporal Tracy Reed with the Gwinnett Police Behavioral Unit. Thank you both for taking time. Again, I really appreciate it. Corporal, I want to go back to something that Pedge talked about, because we all understand that when officers arrive upon a scene, they have no idea what they're going to encounter. We all realize that. And so for officers who then reach out and are requesting assistance, in the meantime, what, what training have you given to them in terms of assessing the situation and in those in the meantime, uh, which can be a minute or it could be 15 minutes. What are you equipping them with to make the best decision as an officer? And because we don't know what could happen next in terms of someone's behavior or actions.
5: So in our training for um, mental illness, substance abuse, intellectual disability disorders, we talk about how the most important thing you can use is time. You don't have to rush these calls. Take the time to to figure out what the crisis is about and how you can help that person in crisis. Uh, We also do teach our officers that um, in order that to do that, you you still can't compromise officer safety, witness safety. Uh, If there's other people in the home, you can't compromise their safety. But the best thing in handling calls like this is just taking the time and being patient. Um, It's not a, a rush to to get back in service. This is one of those times where, if you take the time to get that person to the right place, not only are you helping the person, um, but you're you're helping your district, your county, because you're getting this person to treatment. You're getting them to resources, and then they learn about those resources that they have available to them, along with nine one one, where they can call nine one one if they have an emergency, but they also have my information. They have viewpoints information. They have accountability courts. So they they start to get connected with other resources they might not have known about. Mm-hmm. So it really does, it benefits everybody involved um, when officers do take that time and they have that patience. So I think that's really the, the biggest thing we emphasize in, in our training is just take
2: the time. Well, and Mr. Madavi, you all at Viewpoint Health, is there a cost at all? Listen, you all are business as well. You're also providing service, but, you know, someone listening would say, well, more than likely, individuals need some type of long-term care. Are you all able to continue to see these folks, make sure they get the help that they need? Or do you also have other partners that you work with within the county?
4: So Viewpoint is is unique to other mental health agencies uh, because we are a community service board. Mm-hmm. So we do have the ability to work with folks regardless of insurance and funding um, and all that, so uh, that challenge of somebody not having insurance or not having money we can we can eliminate that right off the bat um, if somebody does have insurance and and all we can use but I think th- this is such an important thing that everybody that 's involved from uh, you know Gwinnett county police leadership to the county to mm-hmm. our leadership at viewpoint uh, and even the state I mean they know how important this is, and I think everybody's willing and they 've shown that they 're willing to put the money up front. Um, To address this. And when you look at it, when you look at all the research and all the studies, you actually end up saving money, uh, getting folks help rather than having to occupy an officer for however many hours Mm -hmm. and go to jail, go to, you know, so uh, it's a win-win. It really Mm -hmm.
2: is. And you're also, so you're also referring to in terms of high incarceration rates for individuals that may not need to be detained, but really require other services. What about for individuals who are unsheltered?
4: THAT IS THE OTHER THING THAT'S A that's a WORK IN PROGRESS. Um, I THINK EVERY MENTAL HEALTH PROFESSIONAL IN GEORGIA WILL TELL YOU HOUSING IS the ONE OF THE BIGGEST THINGS THAT WE STRUGGLE WITH. Um, WE'RE CONSTANTLY WORKING WITH OUR STATE PARTNERS WITH DIFFERENT STATE DEPARTMENT AGENCIES AND, and WHATEVER RESOURCES WE CAN to, TO DEVELOP UNIQUE HOUSING OPPORTUNITIES. I KNOW THE um, DEPARTMENT OF BEHAVIORAL HEALTH RIGHT NOW DOES HAVE CERTAIN VOUCHER OPPORTUNITIES um, that we that are available to us or individuals mm-hmm. with mental illness can apply for so we try to utilize those as much as possible but there's always a need for housing there's a, there's always you know there's always a shortcoming right now when it comes to housing yes and we've been having we this would,
2: conversation a lot
4: yeah i'm sure <laughs>
2: corporate is this mostly for adults juveniles who are you who you all seeing the calls relate to mostly here
5: so so this program is really available for whoever needs it. Um, we can route people to the right resources for them based on their age, based on are they a veteran? Are they struggling with substance abuse? We can route people to the right program. So this is really for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it's if you are a loved one or having a crisis, this is something that could benefit.
2: And for your officers, what has the feedback been like from them?
5: So far, it has been very positive. Um, the fact that we're able to to come out there and we can be there very quickly. Um, we had a call last week um, that was from, you know, our, our West Precinct, which is in Norcross. And our office is up here in Lawrenceville. And we were able to to be with them in about half an hour to to get there and to help them handle that call. And it was a very quick response time. So they were... They were just glad that we were there, and we could kind of take some of that burden off of them to help that individual get to where they needed to go. Um, and, and that's really th- the best benefit here is that this is just a resource that's going to be there faster, and it's the right resource because, you know, this is something that's kind of ended up in the lap of public safety, um, just just due to how things are, are structured here and. That's something we've met with the fire department as well to say, hey, look, we're, we're partnering with Viewpoint so that we can get these folks to the right resource because that's always going to be the best option is to, to get them to treatment, to get them to want treatment and to know how to get to that treatment.
2: Well, Corporate, you just mentioned that was a 30-minute response. I know someone listening saying, that seems like an awful long time. That's a big county. But if the central areas where you and Mr. Madavi, where you all are located, are you all looking at um, ways to possibly reduce that? Would you have other units, so to speak, other partners, you know, other dynamic duos? I like that term. uh, (laughs) Throughout the county so that you can maybe bring that 30-minute response time, you know, decrease that somewhat. Because you can understand someone saying 30 minutes that's that's a that's that's a long time.
5: Yeah, absolutely. We we definitely do have a plan. Um, so so what Mr. Madavi and I are developing. This is the pilot program. So he and I are developing a lot of the response protocols, the policies. How does this look for our agency? While we are also available to respond to, to in progress calls. Um, so our our goal is over the next couple of years is is to really fill this unit out to where we do have coverage for our entire county so Mm -hmm. that, you know, potentially we could have teams assigned to every precinct so that they are available to get there quickly. Um, With that 30-minute response time, there were officers out there with that person. The person wasn't waiting on services for 30 minutes.
2: Okay. Um,
5: So there were officers out there, and they were the ones that requested us. So... Um, in comparison, the um, the resources that we've had to use previously, it could be up to a two hour to a two and a half hour response time. So that we were able to get there in 30 minutes and provide those officers with assistance was huge. Um, did, did, you hour, the, did
2: you say previously maybe an hour to two hours?
5: Yeah, just because of the way the resources are spread out throughout the state and um, throughout the, the region, um, you know, and just just getting the right resource there, you, you gotta wait for them to come. So the fact that we're able to get a resource there that much faster is huge for our guys. And um, the in growing the unit, um, one of the things that, that we do kinda wanna you know, remind people of is like, we're, we're always hiring for more officers. We have a hiring event coming up um, on August 7th, where if this is a kind of unit that interests you and you think that this is a way that you would like to help people, Go to Gwinnett Police Jobs and fill out an application and, and come on, because this is a unit that we want to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And we need people that are passionate about it. Uh,
2: Mr. Mardavi, if you could, if you, and I know that funding is a big part of this too, but if you could get your hands on all the resources you needed to help grow this this program, what what would it look like? You heard Corporal Reed talk about maybe being able to have units in, in every precinct. I imagine you, you agree with that.
4: Absolutely. Um, I think just like we have officers that are able to respond 24/7 uh, promptly, um, I think it would be great to have a mental health professional that could also do that. To have, uh, you know, if 911 call comes in and we determine that it's a mental health crisis, have that mental health clinician respond out within minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be that would be my goal. Uh, at, at bare minimum, one clinician per per precinct, but. Why not
2: more? As we wrap up, because I do want to read something to you all, and this was a, a recent study released by the Treatment Advocacy Center, and this is through their research as I'm reading here from them. Quote, people with untreated mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed during a police encounter than other civilians approach or stopped by law enforcement. So when you hear that statistic and you think about the importance of this program, uh, I'll start with you, Corporal Tracy Reed, What do you make of that? And then also why this program is so important.
5: So when you when you look at the different programs, like the police mental health collaborations, these co-responder programs, most of the websites and the research on those websites does talk about that study that, you know, one in four individuals that are involved in an officer involved shooting suffer from a mental illness. And the the whole point of these programs is to knock that number down. We want people to get treatment and we don't want people to be scared to call 911. If, if you are in a crisis or your loved one is in a crisis, we want you to feel confident that when you call Gwinnett County Police Department, we are sending out officers that can help you and get you to that right resource. And they, they know, that, you know, they're getting that CIT training, they're getting the mental health training, and we have Viewpoint as a resource so that we, we can continue to address that number because we, want, we would much rather folks get treatment.
2: And Corporal, read real quickly. We're about to wrap up, but what do you want folks to know about what they need to say when they call that number?
5: And- so, um, if if someone calls nine one one and they or a loved one are in a mental health crisis, just be honest with the call taker. Tell them everything that you know about if if you have a, a diagnosed mental illness. Tell the call taker if you're on prescribed medications tell the call taker. If you're a patient at a facility, tell the call taker. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. A mental illness is just like any other sickness. It's like it's like having a chronic disease. That's what mental illness is. And we understand that. And we're not going to treat you differently because of that. But the more information that you can provide about yourself or a loved one is going to help us to help you when we get there. So I would just really encourage people to, to be honest and forthcoming about whatever information they have, because that's going to help us in our response.
2: And Mr. Madavi, I'll give you the last word. What do you want to add about not only that statistic, but in terms of what folks need to include when they call Gwinnett County Police?
4: I would say absolutely ditto. When you call 911, put it all out there. The more the merrier. Uh, you can never have too much information, but you can always have not enough uh, and, and with that stigma, I think the number one thing hurting all of us right now is the stigma of mental illness. Mm-hmm. I've always told everybody I work with, I think we all have a mental illness. I don't think you can live in this world and not have it with everything going on right now. Um, you just need to take care, just like you need to take care and eat well, you need to take care of your, 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 your emotions and your, and your health as well.
2: Mm. Good advice there. Pej Madavi, a licensed clinical social worker with Viewpoint Health. Corporal Tracy Reed, also with the Gwinnett Police Behavioral Health Unit talking about a new program there. Thank you both for taking the time to talk about responding to crisis, behavioral health situations. Thank you, I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Rose. Thank you, this is great.
2: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program and let us know what you think about this program in Gwinnett County. It's easy, send me an email rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it's free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott.
3: Hi, it's terry gross the host of fresh air we bring you in-depth long-form interviews with actors directors musicians authors journalists and more listen to our peabody award-winning fresh air podcast from whyy and npr
2: local state national politics wabe and npr have the coverage you need